All right, let's go ahead and get started. I'll pray for us and then we will, we will open up. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for all that you provide us, um, the many physical blessings that you provide us, life, health, provision, But most importantly, Lord, we're, we're thankful for the, the grace and the, and the signs of grace that you have um, bestowed on us, or you grow us in maturity, in spiritual maturity, that you do not leave us as orphans, but, but care for us, grow us in Christ-likeness, and pray that as we continue to think about prayer and the prayers of Paul that as we think of the, the foundations or the framework of Paul's prayer life that that you you would grow our our foundations of prayer to, to align more with with Paul's and with your word so that our our prayers would be um, pleasing to you and, and beneficial for us and your people and it's in Jesus name that we pray Amen. So today we're going to continue our new study through the book, Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. And the goal today is to work through chapter 2 of the book. And just a reminder for those of you who may have missed last week, the book is pretty simple in its aim. Carson seeks to analyze some of the prayers that we have from the Apostle Paul so that we could incorporate some of those principles some of that language even from Paul and the, the theological foundations that Paul uses in our own prayer lives. Because we, we want, we should want to more and more have our own prayers match with or, or be aligned with the prayers we find in God's Word. And so that's just the, the, the large, big goal of the study. And so the next two chapters... Chapters 2 and 3 are going to be in one text, and that text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can open there, so we're going to be spending most of our time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And chapter 2 of, of Carson's book examines verses 3 through 10. And chapter 3 will analyze the actual petition or the actual prayer from Paul, we see in verses 11 and 12. And Carson argues before we get to the actual petitions in verses 11 and 12, that we should pause, we should meditate further on the foundation those petitions are laid on. We can see this in, in verse 11, but Paul writes, to this end, we always pray for you. Do you see that? That phrase, to this end, could also be translated, with this in mind. We pray for you. However you translate it, that, that phrase, the, the, the point is, whatever came before in Paul's writing is the basis for the prayer in verses 11 and 12. And specifically, I think we're, he's talking about verses 3 through 10. We can know that that's, that's one sentence, one long sentence in 
the original language. So the, the whole section is what Paul has in mind. It's the, the framework that Paul's operating with in his petitions in verses 11 and 12. Again, this is what call, Carson is calling the framework of Paul's prayer or Paul's petitions. Now what we have in verses 3 through 10 is a pretty common feature of all Paul's letters. So after the salutation, he typically provides a segment of the letter devoted to thanksgiving. And these are, are carefully crafted to address the context of the, the receivers of the letter, of the readers of the letter, to address the specific church or, or churches that he's writing to. And what we see and in this Thanksgiving portion of this letter, as I just stated, is that, that Paul is giving the reasons why or the reasons that ground his, his petitions, his prayers for the Thessalonian church. Now, Carson doesn't unpack every detail of verses 3 through 10 in this chapter, which I'm largely thankful for because we could really get lost in the weeds in these verses. There's a lot of good stuff here. But his aim and his goal is to show how Paul has two dominant features that make up his framework for his prayer. And it's only then when we understand these two features of, of the foundation of Paul's prayer that we can then understand the prayer itself. So we have to understand the foundation, the framework of the prayer to actually understand the petitions of the prayer. And the two features are this. And this is what we're going to be spending the rest of our time unpacking this morning. First, Paul is thankful for the signs of grace in the believer's life. Paul, Paul is thankful for the signs of grace in the believer's life. And second, Paul is confident of the believer's vindication at Jesus' second coming. Second, Paul's confident of Jesus' or of the believer's vindication. And these two truths are, are the bedrock that spurs Paul on to, to ask God of certain things for these believers in verses 11 and 12. But let's first think about Paul's thanksgiving here. In verse 3, we read. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So what we see pretty clearly is here is that thanksgiving, thankfulness, is a fundamental component of the mental framework that leads to Paul's intercession, or Paul's petition on the Thessalonians' behalf, which should lead to the question, what is Paul thankful for? What, what is he offering thanks for? In verse 3, Paul gives thanks for, for two things. First, that the faith of his readers is growing, growing abundantly. And second, that their, their love for each other is increasing, also growing. So their faith is growing and their love for each other is growing. That's, that's what he is thankful for. So first, the, the believers are growing in their faith. Now, 
we get a big clue of what Paul is meaning here by faith with the idea of faith growing or faith multiplying. Because he can't then be meaning the, the faith of believers' uh, initial conversion. Because that, that faith that is necessary for salvation is not something that, that, that grows or can be lost. It is something that's wrought in us by, the, by our regeneration through the work of the Spirit. But there is a faith that, that Paul talks about frequently that, that, that grows or increases. And that growth is our growing reliance or our growing trust in the Lord. This is what happens as Christians grow in spiritual maturity, as we grow in, in Christ-likeness and, and reliance and trust upon the Lord as we, um, through just the ordinary means of grace in our lives. This word faith could also be translated as fidelity or, or faithfulness. Our, our fidelity to the Lord will grow and increase, which is marked by a growing trust in the Lord and a growing trust in His gospel. So the way this can practically work out in the life of the believer is that the Christian will grow in their trust of God's promises, we'll grow in our trust of, of his character, of who he is as revealed to us in the scriptures. We'll, we'll trust that a growing trust that, that his word is, is true and that he is what his word says he is. Also, the, the idea of growth... Carson points out, brings with it the, the understanding that the Thessalonians are not satisfied with what Carson calls, I like this phrase, yesterday's attainments. Yesterday's attainments. Or said another way, where, where we were spiritually, where we were spiritually maturity-wise yesterday. Now they, they have a desire. They have a desire to grow in their trust of the Lord, for their faith to grow. They're, they're working, they're, they're stretching upward for greater spiritual maturity. And this is what Paul is giving thanks about to God. Paul's thankful that these Christians are growing in their reliance, growing in their trust of the Lord, and growing abundantly. And what does abundantly mean? It's going to wake us up with some questions. A lot. It's growing a lot, which is good. Next in the verse, there, next in, in verse three, we see that Paul gives thanks for their, their love for one another, or that their love for one another is increasing. Carson points out that the language is very clear here that, that what Paul has in mind is not the believer's love for God is increasing, though a love for God or, or a love for other presupposes that our love for God is increasing. But he says clearly the love they have for one another. This is what he, he's thankful for. And the love Paul's describing here is not kind of the, the sentimental feeling that we might think of when we hear the word love in our modern context. No, love here is very, very practical. The self-sacrificial service of Christians, that, that the self-sacrificial service that Christians have, or the, 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 practi the practice of serving sac self-sacrificially for one another, 
That is what love means here. That is how, you could say, that's how we show love. And we should expect this from the Thessalonians when we think about the words from our Lord in, in John 13. We just studied this in, I guess, a couple months ago, maybe weeks ago. In our sermon series, John 13, verses 33, or 34 through 35, where Jesus says love for each other will be the distinguishing mark of his followers. So there should be an ex- expectation then if we look at a community of his people, the church, that this love for each other should be present. And that's exactly what Paul sees. That's what he's thankful for. This is, this is how it should be going. So Paul is thanking God, which is a key aspect of his framework for prayer. And he's thanking God because the believer's love for each other is increasing, which is actually a fruit of them abiding in Christ, being obedient to Christ's commands. As Jesus himself says, this will be what marks his people off. The love for the brothers and sisters is a sign of God's grace in them. The sign of God's working in them. And Carson goes on, I think, two asides in this chapter that, I, that are kind of unrelated to the chapter. At, at least, in, not unrelated, but don't contribute to the overall argument. But they're really, really good, so we're going to go with them there. And this is a little aside where, and I do think this is, this is really important, he argues that a close-knit human societies, or that in close-knit human societies, it can be easier to foster love and have cohesion or unity where, where social, cohesion, social cohesion is, is present or similarity is present. So if a group like a sports team or a club or even a local church, if everyone in that group is of the same class, ethnicity, culture, same relative social status, then the commonalities between the members of the group makes it easier to to love one another or give something up for the others in the group. I'm sure we've all experienced something like this in, in our lives. And that's not even necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of the, the way that the world works. Now, the church, Carson argues, is a fundamentally different institution and in that the church is made up of different groups, different types of people, right? You, you have different economic classes, different cultures, in the same local congregation. There, there are educated, uneducated, vastly different personality types even sitting in this room. From um, there's, right, there's extroverts, there's introverts, there's, there's everything in between. There are intense people, very intense people, and carefree people, or my preferred term, chill people. The point being, the church is a place that doesn't make sense to the world that these people would love each other, that these people would be in community with each other. We don't always have social cohesion, which makes it more natural to to live life with someone. That's, That's been Carson's argument here. 
And yet because that's true, and the church is a diverse place of different types of people, then we know, as Carson argues in this chapter, that the, the only thing that holds such people together, the only way that we could have unity, is a shared allegiance to Jesus Christ and a shared allegiance to what he has done for us and our devotion to him, our love for him, which produces fruit of, of the obedience to his commands, which is to love one another. Carson goes further down this rabbit hole. He takes the aside further to point out what he calls the wretchedly pathetic experience. Great phrase. The wretchedly pathetic experience when a local church becomes a place full of resentment and bitterness for each other. So kind of the opposite of love, the opposite of sacrifice, would be resentment and bitterness. And it's wretchedly pathetic because division amongst God's people in his local church is reprehensible. And we aren't talking about division between congregations because of doctrinal differences. That's good and even necessary in some ways. But division over resentment and bitterness is evil. And Carson's point here is that the resentments and divisions typically occur in a congregation where, where some temporal commonalities are not there. It's obviously not always the case, but there is more room for difference and therefore offense and resentment when there is major differences in a group. So maybe there isn't economic or, or educational or cultural similarity in a congregation. Said another way, what the world typically unifies around. And when those categories are more important than our union together in Christ, that's a breeding ground for this type of resentment and bitterness to take hold. So Carson here is really just warning against um, this type of disastrous division and resentment that can take place in any congregation. And the church then must flee from and have no part of prioritizing these types of worldly associations that are not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, all of that is essentially Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians said negatively. But Paul says it positively in what, what he is thankful for in the, con in the congregation, in the Thessalonian church that these Christians are, are not doing that. They're not dividing. They're, they're, they're not experiencing the division that Carson's describing here. Rather, they're, they're growing in love for each other. They're growing in, in self-sacrificial love for each other. Their love for one another is increasing because their faith is increasing and their love and trust of Jesus is increasing. And with greater love and trust of Jesus inevitably comes greater love and service to the people of God. And another thing to note here is who is Paul thanking? Right, who's Paul thanking? This is, this is really simple, but it's profound. Paul is thanking God 
for the Thessalonians, love increasing because Paul knows that such love must be the work of God. So who should Paul thank? God, because it's God's work in the life of the Thessalonians that's leading to their faith and their increase of faith and leading to their increase of love for each other. God produces the signs of grace in believers. So that is why he should be the one that, that gets the praise and thanks. So I'll pause here for any questions or comments before moving on. Now before going on to verse 4, Carson does lay out a, a, a helpful section that assesses what, what Paul is thankful for compared to what we are typically thankful for. And by we, he's meaning the, just the general Christian. And really here, Carson's aim is to get very practical by asking some challenging diagnostic questions about, about the foundation of our own prayer lives, the framework of our own prayer lives. Really diagnostic questions that get, get to the questions of our heart. What is it that we actually value? And that is just to ask, what do you typically give thanks for? Or what are you typically grateful and thankful for? Carson goes through a list of some things that are common for Christians to give thanks for, from material blessings, such as being able to, to own a home, pay a mortgage, buy a car, buy food. We may give thanks when our health is intact or we recover from an illness. His, his point is, by and large, our, our thanksgiving and prayer is typically tied to our material well-being and comfort. Now, this is not to say that we, we shouldn't thank God for all that He provides us physically and the many blessings He pours out on His children. We should definitely do that. We, we need to be doing that. But what Carson is critiquing is when we only thank God for such things, when that is the primary motivating factor in our prayer lives, and not the, the signs of grace that, that Paul is thanking God for in the text in 2 Thessalonians. And his argument is what we most frequently give thanks for is what we most highly value. What we most frequently are thankful for is what we most value. So if a large percentage of our thanksgiving and prayer is for material, material prosperity, it is because we most value material prosperity. What we pray for is proportionate to what we value. And I think it's a really important lesson here that Carson is trying to nail down. And again, it's a good diagnostic test for each of us to just take, even this week. Just begin to consider, maybe even write down, what is it that I'm grateful for? What is it that that I'm primarily thankful for in, in my life? And the goal then of studying what Paul is thankful for, like in a place like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is that our our framework for prayer 
could more and more align with Paul's, and, and that his values can become more and more our values, which here, as we've seen, has been what? The, the, these, these signs of grace in the believer's lives. And we see one more sign of grace in verse 4. And it's that Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians are persevering under trial. Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians are persevering under persecution. Verse 4 reads, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So this form of thanksgiving from Paul is cast in a different light or in a different form than, than verse 3, as Paul's talking about his, his thankfulness and boasting of the Thessalonians to other churches, which is interesting. But Carson argues we, we should still view this under the same umbrella of thanksgiving to God. And his argument is that we need to notice that Paul's gratitude to God is not just some private exercise of his personal prayer life or, or the, the, that he just keeps in the privacy of his own thought life that is the foundation of his prayer life. No, no, his, his thanksgiving is also public. These believers, the Thessalonians, whose faith and love for each other increased... Right? They, they therefore were spiritually strong enough to persevere under the person, persecution and the trials that they were enduring. And this faithfulness under persecution was so incredible to Paul that he boasts about it in the other churches, two other congregations. And we know that Paul's not boasting about their faithfulness in and of themselves or even in his church planting abilities that he's like, oh, wow, I just planted this wonderful church. Look how faithful they are. That's not what, what Paul's doing here. Carson writes, he, he's, he's, he's arguing something like this. Paul's saying something like this. Have you noticed how powerfully the grace of God is operating in the lives of the Thessalonian believers? The way they withstand the pressures of persecution and of assorted trials is truly remarkable, a compelling testimony to the grace of God. Fortified by their growing faith and love, they just press on and on. What an example, what an encouragement, what an incentive for the rest of us. And I think Carson's spot on here with, with, with what Paul is trying or is intending to communicate in this verse. And then we can see then, right, that the boasting of these believers is really nothing more than praise and thanksgiving to, to God, which he speaks of in the presence of other churches. So Paul's thankful for their, their enduring persecution faithfully. And so with these three signs of grace, we, we see one key component to the framework, to the foundation that Paul's operating with as he then um, takes his petitions or intercedes to the Lord. And those three, again, thankfulness for their growing faith, thankfulness for their love for each other, and thankfulness of them enduring persecution faithfully. 
Now question, how does this apply directly to our prayer lives? It's a good question. And if we want to develop a, a mental framework like Paul's, then we too must look, this is really simple, we too must look for the signs of grace in the lives of the believers that the Lord has placed in our, in our lives and the signs of great grace in our own lives. And we need to be thankful for them. We need to be grateful for them. And then we need to simply give God thanks for them. But it's not just that Paul gives thanks for the spiritual maturity of a group of Christians before he goes on to ask God for more maturity for them, although he is doing that in some sense, and we all must do that in some sense. But really what we see is the specific elements or, or the specific elements of his thanksgiving show us what Paul values. That's really the big key here that I want us to take away. We get to see what Paul values the most in his life, which then would lead him to pray a certain way. It's the foundation that he brings to his intercession before God. And it's that framework of gratitude for the signs of grace for other believers that should be guiding our prayers as well. This has, I think this has so much relevance. It's very similar to an application point Blake made last week in, in the sermon when he asked, when's the last time that you've been thankful or grateful for the fruit of the Spirit in your own life? When is the last time that, that we've thanked God for growing us? I think he said this. He said this, right? I can't look at him. He probably doesn't remember. But, <laughs> but he did say this. Same principle here that, that Paul's using, but the difference is being thankful for the signs of grace and, and other believers' lives and other Christians in this church lives. But I think, again, it also applies for the signs of grace that, that God is working in us. And if that is on the, the forefront of our mind, right, that the, these signs of grace, being grateful for them, do you see how that will change how we pray for our brothers and sisters? or even what we pray for ourselves. If we have the right foundation, the right framework, then our prayers will begin to be more aligned with the, the Scriptures. So the big guiding principle in this section is that we should make it our aim to, to praise God, to be thankful to God, when we see the evidence of spiritual growth that the signs of grace in other believers' lives. I'll pause here again for comments or questions. All right, so we move on now in, in 2 Thessalonians to verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1. And we read in verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So the this in the beginning of verse 5 or verse, refers to the faithfulness of the Thessalonians 
under trials and, and persecution that, that Paul just referred to in verse 4. And that faithfulness is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, since God is granting the believers grace to endure. God's on their side and, and working in their lives because he, he is righteous. And Paul goes further to say that the, the Christians may be worthy of the kingdom of God. Carson argues that the, the, their perseverance then demonstrates their right to enter the kingdom or, or the reason why they are counted worthy to enter the kingdom because they're, they're faithful to the king of the kingdom, even amidst vast persecutions, even amidst terrible trials. Paul's assuming here that, that everyone that enters the kingdom of God, so all Christians, Will, will persevere until the end. And the kingdom of God in this context is referring to the ultimate, consummated kingdom of God. The reign of God without any contention at the end of the age. So that the final triumph of God in the new heavens and new earth. So the perseverance of Christians, of the Christians, our perseverance today is aimed for or has the goal for that final, final glorious kingdom. Meaning, more simply, Christians are prepared to suffer in this life. We can face persecution and suffering in this life because we keep our eye on, on that goal, which is the fully consummated kingdom of God where, where our complete joy, peace is found. That's, that's, our, that's our certain future, which allows us to endure now. This is what allows the, the Thessalonians to, to endure the persecution they're facing. Which means, as Carson says, Christians are not masochists. Carson writes, We do not want to suffer out of some forlorn but stupid belief that suffering is intrinsically good. Anyone who's really suffered or has faced persecution for their faith knows it's not a, a fun experience that should be coveted. Christians aren't one who, who, who seeks suffering for suffering's sake. Right? That, that makes no, no sense. It actually is nonsense. Now, Carson doesn't give a detailed exposition of these verses, but he, he highlights two themes that present that, that are present, that, that shape, again, his framework for his petitions in verses 11 and 12. And what we see is that Paul's focus on, on the onset of that future day, the day of the Lord, the, the, the coming of Christ again, and the new heavens and new earth, his focus on that event and the implication of that event or what it means for believers and for non-believers that, that is the framework that then guides Paul's prayers. So first we see for believers, there will be vindication in the end times. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 10. And just notice, as I'm reading, notice what he says about the certain future for believers. 
and also for non-believers. I'll start in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. So notice for the Christian, Ultimate and final justice is guaranteed when Jesus returns. God will grant relief to you who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Verse 7. Verse 10. Jesus will be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed when he comes. There's a real sense of expectancy here. That, that expectancy that Christ, Christians should have on that day, on the final day of Jesus' return. And Carson goes on another aside here. I think this one actually is more closely related to, to the chapter. And he argues that this sense of expectation is a sense that evangelicals have lost. And he focuses the blame on this de-emphasis of, of looking longingly and expectingly on uh, Jesus' return, on his second coming. He blames this de-emphasis on an overreaction to too much emphasis on, on eschatology and end-time debates in previous generations. So I don't know if you guys know, but, but you probably do. There's a lot of controversy around the end times and the events of the end times, and I think it was even more controversial even a generation ago, and a reaction against getting lost in those controversies or timing of the end times, when it's going to happen, who, how it's going to happen, a reaction against that is a neglect of actual teaching of what Scripture promises on the topic or what Scripture says on the topic. Because pastors and theologians were fatigued by, by that fight, essentially. This, this, is, this is Carson's argument. I think I'm pretty persuaded by his argument. But the trouble is, then, is that, that Christians are losing what Carson calls our anticipation of the Lord's return. Which is the anticipation, this is really key here, this is the anticipation that's so fundamental to Paul's thinking not just here in Thessalonians, it is fundamental to all the New Testament authors' thinking. A anticipation of the second coming of Christ. An expect, a longing expectation of our certain future. Now I'd say Christians don't reject these categories theologically. We all confess that Jesus will one day return to, to judge the living and the dead. Right? It's part of, I think, most every confession 
that, that Christians confess. But what Carson is getting after is really, he, he's talking about our affections. And, and that we've devotionally, we have lost our anticipation of the Lord's return. Carson writes, For many of us, the power of the Lord's return has been eviscerated. The prospect of the Lord's return in glory, the anticipation of the wrap-up of the universe as we know it, the confidence that there will be a final and irrevocable division between the just and the unjust, these have become merely creedal points. So merely, merely points of belief that we confess. Instead, so because they have just become creedal points, instead of the ultimate realities that even now are life transformed the ultimate realities that guide everything we do. And if Carson is right, which I think he, he largely is, then the implications of that are, are really big. Because instead of investing our lives for what is promised to come, what is guaranteed to happen, we will be more and more tempted and seduced in devoting our time, our energy, our resources on temporal things that don't last. We're in danger of doing what our Lord warns against us in Matthew 6.19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But rather, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And that shift from having a, a temporal mindset instead of a good, eternal mindset will negatively affect our prayer lives. Right? Do you see that? If we're focused on mainly the temporal, what are we going to pray about? The temporal, right? If we're focused more on the eternal of what is certain, the, future, the, the certain future that is going to come, then that what will follow in our prayers. So the, the key framework here that, that leads Paul to intercede on behalf of the Thessalonians is that believers will one day be vindicated. But we also need to see the, the second key feature in the framework of the prayer, which is that for others, for non-believers, on that final day there will be retribution. There will be judgment. Again, we can see this clearly in verses 5 through 10. You can listen to some of these remarks from Paul on the fate of the ungodly, and especially those that afflict or persecute Christians. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, listen to that language, vengeance, on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So here, it's, it's not even just those that persecute Christians, right? He's talking about anybody that denies the gospel. Any non-believer will face vengeance on that day. The vengeance of the Lord. And it's going to be on those that don't know God, that, that is a, a saving knowledge of God, and those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. 
Obviously, this is a, a sober, sobering passage. As we think about our, our non-believing neighbors and, and friends and family. But it's clear, right, from the biblical text and from this text, that, that non-believers will one day face retribution, will face judgment for their unbelief. And Carson, again, he gives really helpful commentary here on, on our, our present age and how many people in our day and age are, find this idea of God's righteous judgment against unbelievers. Many people find that idea repugnant, even, even folks in the church. There's a common misconception, maybe you've talked to someone like this, that this type of judgment language this type of judgment by God really just belongs to Old Testament narratives. That this type of judgment by God uh, does not exist in the age of Jesus, which is all about grace, love, and peace. Have you heard this type of argument? I know I have. But, but every Christian knows this type of thinking doesn't work. It's, it's, it, it just doesn't work. We all have a deep sense of justice in us, and that if evil goes unpunished, then there actually can't be love displayed. There will be no justice if evil goes unpunished. We confess as Christians that the whole gospel is based on notions of retribution, on judgment. If God overlooks evil on the basis that he's loving, then does that not also mean he's unconcerned ultimately about justice or injustice and evil? It's exactly the issue the cross solves. God is, is holy. He's perfect in holiness and perfect in his love. Carson argues his holiness demands retribution. His love sends his own son to take on and absorb that retribution on behalf of his people. So in the cross, we, we see that God demands judgment for sin. God demands retribution for sin. And that out of his great love, he sends his own son to die to pay for the penalty for that sin. Right? That is the gospel. That's the, that's the whole message of the cross, what we're going to celebrate um, on, on Friday. So forgiveness of sins is only possible because there is real offense that has occurred. There is actually sin, and therefore there is judgment that must occur, real judgment, a real sacrifice that happened on the cross that cancels the debt of sin for those that put their faith in Jesus. This is at the heart of the Christian message. And here's where we get to the passage. And, and God's retribution towards unbelievers in 2 Thessalonians is if someone rejects the sacrifice of Christ and refuses to acknowledge that they deserve retribution for their actions because of their sin, refuses to accept the forgiveness of Christ, and their whole life cries out, as, as Carson writes here, I'll do it my way. I will be my own Lord then God's word is clear. Their ultimate faith, fate without repentance is eternal destruction. That's their ultimate fate. And then there's some people, non-believers, that, that are so hardened 
that they even take it upon themselves to pour out evil and persecute Christians because of the gospel message that's proclaimed. And that's what's happening here in this chapter. That's, what ha that's what's happening in the context of, of the Thessalonians. And again, the, the ultimate fate of the non-believers and those non-believers who persecute the brothers and sisters in the faith will experience everlasting destruction, everlasting conscious torment in hell. And so these truths of, of God's eternal punishment for sinners and, and God's vindication of believers on the day of Jesus Christ, on the day of the Lord, is a massive feature, framework, in Paul's prayer that we see that we're going to study next time in verses 11 and 12. Now, one way of focus on hell as, as the final place for non-believers will shape our prayer, prayers is, again, I think really simple. And that is that we, we should pray that they would be saved. We should pray that they would be saved from that judgment because such were some of us or all of us. This is all of our story before knowing Jesus. And God saved us. God saved us through Jesus, not on anything that we did. And so that is what we should be praying for the non-believers that, that God brings in our life. Right? Non-believers' greatest need in this life is that if they do not repent and God turn their heart, then their ultimate end is eternal destruction. And so if we meditate on this truth, then our prayers will be a pleading with the Lord that he would save those from such a fate. That God would, would save those like he saved us. But also, as we think about these truths of, of vindication and retribution, as a, as a framework for prayer, we can say generally the framework that Paul's operating with in his intercession before the Lord is one that's fundamental orientation is to the end of the age. That's the big idea here. Paul's mental framework, the way he thinks, is oriented to the end of the age. Which means he's not primarily focused on the here and now. I mean, that doesn't mean he's, he's not focused on it at all, but what orients his mind, what, he, what he's gazed on, what he's fixed on, is that day of Jesus Christ. And think about how that emphasis from Paul is different from our modern context of kind of pragmatism and living in a materialistic society. In an age such as this, it can be very difficult, extremely difficult to focus on what is to come in the future, even what is guaranteed to happen for us in God's Word. So if we, we, if we don't actively and persistently focus on that end times, new heaven and new earth, the fully consummated kingdom of God, and we don't focus on those, those values, we'll be, as Carson said, argues in this chapter, we'll be fundamentally wrong-headed. I think it's a great way to put it. We'll, we'll be wrong-headed which will negatively affect how we, how we pray or what we pray for. Carson writes, Can biblical spirituality long survive where Christians are not oriented to the world to come? 
And in this context, can we expect to pray aright unless we are oriented to the world to come? So I think these, these questions are, are spot on, exactly um, where we should be as we, as we read a passage like 2 Thessalonians 1. And they should challenge us, not in some debilitating way, but a good, healthy challenge of what are our presuppositions of our prayer life? What are the presuppositions of your prayer life? And to say it bluntly, if we aren't satisfied with our prayer lives, it could be because we're, we're focused on entirely the wrong things. Because we have a mental framework that's focused on the here and now, or it's focused on material blessing, or that's focused on, on, on something right that's not on the signs of grace that, that Paul is focused on, or, or, or the sure vindication and future hope of Christians. We could need a framework reorientation. And that's been kind of the whole goal of this chapter, is for us to be considering this before we get into the actual petitions and prayers of, of Paul, where we come to pray to God with, with the same presuppositions that Paul approaches God with. Right Again, that, that we're grateful for the signs of grace among the people of God that we're, we're, that we're commanded to love, that we're commanded to be praying for. Right? That's, that's the brothers and sisters in this room. That's the brothers and sisters in this congregation. That's who we have a special obligation, a privilege even, to pray and to love each other. And that we, we begin to pray more with the confidence in the, the, the certain and sure future hope that God will, will one day vindicate his people when Jesus returns. And so if this becomes more and more our heartbeat as Christians, if this is our foundation, then our prayers will begin to more align with Scripture. It will align with Paul's prayers because we're, we're operating with the same framework. We're operating with the same presuppositions. And so next time we're going to look into more detail into the actual peti petitions in verses 11 and 12. So stop here. Any final Questions or comments? Hold on, I'm trying to find this text. 18. Well, yeah, I think my simple answer is that he's not a believer, so there's actually no signs of grace that he's thankful for. He's, yeah, he's thankful for sin. Well, I think that could be a helpful framework into what is right prayer, or what is, in, in the Thessalonian context, it wouldn't be the first thing. It wouldn't be what the, the tax collector's doing, the, the Pharisee's doing. It would be a recognition of God's mercy and grace in their lives, right? They're, they're a recognition that they're not good, they're not righteous because of anything they've done in themselves, but because of what God has been working in them. Right? It's all really good, really good conversation. Anything else? All right. We are dismissed. Thank you so much.